0: What's up rich friends welcome back to another episode of net worth and chill with me your host vivian 2 aka your rich bff and your favorite wall street girly and this week we got to talk about one of the touchiest subjects when it comes to money the other day i was at the airport at a random bakery cafe situation and i wanted to grab a croissant sandwich and a water before my flight i was sitting in economy i knew they were not gonna feed me and i was gonna have to bring my own dinner bring my own snacks so I grab a water out of the little fridge thing and a sandwich out of the little hot rotator thingy that was keeping all of the packaged sandwiches warm. And I took it to the counter and checked out. And when I checked out, I was prompted to tip and my selections were 20, 25, and 30%. And listen, hear me out if I'm sitting at a nice restaurant or someone is door dashing my food to me in the rain, I have no problem tipping 20 to 30%. But I was literally in an airport and the cashier did not help me find my food. She didn't even heat it up for me. The only thing she did was scan the barcodes. And I am so tired of being prompted to tip people to just do their baseline jobs, but in a state of panic, obviously, and social anxiety and not wanting to be late to board my flight, I hit 20% and just moved on with my day. And I thought about that interaction the entire flight. And I know anytime that I'm at a register and they hand me an iPad, I'm gonna be tipping on something. And you know, honestly, I really wish I had pressed no tip. So today we're gonna cover the history of tipping, whether or not we should be tipping, and for all of the besties who are tipped workers, how you can get ahead financially when your income is almost entirely based on the generosity of others. We're joined today by an expert in the space. Not only has she spent over 20 years working in the service industry, but she's also recently written a book entirely focused on reaching financial freedom as a tipped worker. Everyone, please welcome Barbara Sloan. Hi, Vivian. I'm so pumped to be here. Thanks for chatting with me. Of course. Thank you so much for joining. You are a wealth of knowledge and I'm so excited to dive in. But before we jump in, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal career experience. What jobs have you personally worked in the service industry? Which ones paid the best? Which ones paid the worst? Yeah, man.
1: Okay. So I have been a bartender, a go-go dancer, a stripper, a fetish performer, a sideshow showgirl, a circus performer, a flair bartender, a pole dancer, a cater waiter, a waitress, you name it. If it involved tips, I have done it. And I have worked all over the US. I worked in LA, Boston, Vegas, New York, Detroit.
0: I mean, I have worked, I, I feel like I have really been a part of the service industry. You know, it's so funny. You obviously mentioned a couple jobs that I very much thought you were going to mention like a bartender or a server or even a stripper, but circus performer. Okay. I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't sure that that was a tipped job, but that's actually really cool to learn from.
1: Yeah. If you are hired, I did a lot of private gigs and so like a lot of corporate events. So Mm -hmm. if I was doing, you know, spinning poi or doing some aerialist position,
0: it was often tipped. Interesting. And where does tipping like come from? Because when I went on vacation in Europe last year, I didn't really have to tip at restaurants. At most, it was like if I made a mess, I would leave 2 or $3 on the table and it was super appreciated and it was just kind of strange to leave a large tip.
1: Yeah, that's this is such a great question. So what's interesting is that tipping came from Europe initially. Oh, okay. So it was brought over by Americans who thought it was really aristocratic when they would go to Europe and they would see people being tipped. And so they brought it back to the US. It was popularized after the Civil War. So people who were formerly enslaved were freed and went out and sought employment. And mostly they were hired in positions at restaurants and the railroads. Both Mm -hmm. at the time were positions that were tipped. So restaurants and railroads were tipped positions. And so in, in some ways it was a loophole where these employers got to continue to profit off of the backs of their black brown mm-hmm. uneducated and minority workers and you know i would consider that very problematic yeah <laughs> railroad workers went on strike eventually and they got to be part of what's now considered the standard minimum wage mm-hmm. they went on strike and they received Workplace benefits. Mm-hmm. People in restaurants, bars, and clubs today are still held, and they're the only industry that is held to an entirely different, what's known as a sub minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And federally in the US, that is $2.13 an hour, which is horrifying, terrifying, wow. terrible, awful. Like, ugh. yeah. So it doesn't come from a good place, but what's important to remember is that the people who work in this industry are not, you know, the employers of yesteryear from 150 years ago. They are often. Hardworking entrepreneurs who sank their entire life savings to open a bar, a restaurant, or a club, right? And these are really difficult industries to run. They run on slim mm-hmm. margins, and a big reason that tipping is still around is it's it, people should think of it sort of as a subsidy, right? The government understands that there's so many important nuances that these industries provide. They are the backbone of our economy and our communities. If you think about, like, I don't, you're a real estate investor. I'm a real estate investor. When we look to purchase real estate, what do we all Always looking for what's around what bars are around what restaurants are around what clubs are around what beauty and body services are around because we know that it will mean that our real estate will hold its value right. that there will be other industries around because It's it's a very supportive industry for other industries, and so the government knew that this industry was really important, and so they offer this subsidy to say like, hey, you the consumer can participate directly in a portion of the employee's compensation, and therefore the employer doesn't have to then increase wages, provide employer benefits, pay taxes on all of that, Mm. and you don't have to have a sixty dollar hamburger, right? Right. And so the reason that it's different in Europe, for instance, they have different laws they have different strategies but it's a very big misconception that o- tipping only happens in the u.s tipping is actually a global practice there's a few places where tipping is not present such as australia china major cities in europe but tipping is over over a third of the countries in the world have a tipping percentage of more than 10 percent. so it is a global practice we just happen to have one of the highest tipping standards right. in, in in the u.s and canada
0: Interesting. And, you know, I think it's so thoughtful that you bring up that this isn't some evil corporation. A lot of times, like these bars and restaurants are very much run by mom and pops who are also very much just trying to make ends meet. And, you know, knowing this pretty awful history of tipping and that we want to support these service workers, how do you recommend listeners navigate tipping in the current economy when people's wallets may feel tight for themselves? And you don't want to be a jerk. But sometimes I feel like uh, these days, anytime you have one of those iPad situations, I know I'm about to be asked for an insane percentage on my cup of coffee or this croissant I bought or something of that nature when it isn't necessarily warranted. Uh, Certainly in some cases it is, but you know, how do you navigate that without being just a complete terrible person and like not taking into account that someone is working and like needs that money? Yeah, this is such a important conversation for us to be having because I think the first thing to
1: recognize is that the iPad is new it's, it's a new it's a it's a new technology and it's a new thing that's popping up in our face at the establishments that we're used to going to but it's also important to remember that the iPad is replacing what used to be a tip jar and so in some situations you learned how to interact with the tip jar you were like there's situations where I do put money into the tip jar and then there's situations where I don't put money into the tip jar and so yeah it's a little more in your face in this in this way that technology wants to make our life simpler, but in (laughs) some ways it it doesn't. Right. And so we have to learn to interact with this new thing in a new way. And just like in any industry, you have to be an engaged and informed consumer. And this service industry is no different. So the thing I, I always love to mention about the service industry is that oftentimes majority of these experiences are luxury experiences. You are not, and should never be asked to be tipped at a grocery store getting your basic food items Mm -hmm. you should never be asked to tip for a medical procedure (laughs) right like your physical therapist should never be asking you for a tip your doctor should not your teachers right like anything that's considered a necessity should not be a tipping environment however service is subjective it's a subjective experience and you are the only person who can adequately judge your experiences which is why for service workers there is that two-part compensation a portion comes from the employer and then a portion comes from you because you get to judge how that experience went for yourself and honestly that's a really nice feature in when you're having an experience that you get to be an active participant in how that went people don't have to just tip 25 percent on every service experience you get to be a part of that there is no morality In using the range of tipping that is available to you. So what I like to talk about is the range of tipping for people in the service industry. I like to operate off of 15 to 25%. The reason Mm -hmm. that 15 is a baseline for me is because oftentimes when you work in the service industry, you have to tip out as well. So if you're a waitress, you are tipping out a busboy. If you're a bartender, you're tipping out a barback. If you're a waitress, you're also probably tipping out the bar. Can you can you
0: explain tipping out to me? Just because I, I watched, you know, um, the movie uh, Hustlers with Constance Wu and J-Lo and they, you know, obviously they were making a ton of money as strippers. And then everyone would basically have their hand out, like everyone from the DJ to the cocktail waitresses, to the security, to the lady at the back who happened to, you know, have the hairspray in the tampons like why were they paying all of these people like what what like how does that work yeah so support industries have support staff as well
1: and so yeah Mm -hmm. when i when you're dancing at a club you're often going to start with your house fees which is what you're going to pay to dance right you're going to tip out your security staff you're going to tip out your bar wait wait, wait, you have to pay to dance yeah there's a house fee it's like when you're a hairstylist you have to pay a chair fee you rent a chair wow okay yeah and so most people don't understand that when you're getting when you know, you're giving somebody a tip, not all of that goes to them. And that's why this range of 15 to 25% exists is because 15 means 15 sends a message like, Mm -hmm. Hey, this didn't go well. And, right. it's, and likely it sounds like there wasn't an opportunity for me to course correct during our experience. It didn't go well, but you shouldn't have to pay out of pocket in order to have waited on me. So I'm going to give you the bare minimum, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if an establishment, you know, and a service experience goes really well, 25 is an awesome tip that sends the message of you did a great job. You were awesome at entertaining me. You were awesome at time management. You were awesome at getting me the things that I needed when right. I needed them. And so that's why this range exists. And that's why this compensation is so special and unique to this industry. Mm.
0: Okay, so let's do a quick lightning round. And I'm asking this for a friend and the friend is me. Um, How much should we tip at the following establishments at a fancy restaurant? 15 to 25%. Okay, what about a fast casual restaurant? So like a Chipotle or a fast food place?
1: I would never tip at a fast food restaurant. Interesting. I would never tip at a Chipotle. So I think part of this is what's leading to counter, is what's leading to some of the tipping fatigue. Right. Is that people who work at a counter, they aren't held to the $2.13 sub-minimum wage. They're part of the regular minimum wage, Mm. which we should all recognize is still really hard to live on. Certainly. Right. And so if you're getting your ice cream scoop by someone who's making 725, dollars please give them an extra dollar if they went above and beyond and they gave you a smile or they gave you good service. And if there is that option for you, but if you're at a fast food restaurant, you shouldn't feel the need to tip at a counter. I always like to say tip on service, not on product. So for your instance at the airport and you grabbed a bottle of water and a packaged sandwich, feel empowered to hit no tip. This is just like you ignoring that tip jar because you know that you didn't get a service. Right. Right. And so I think it's just us having these conversations that's really important to say that we're re educating ourselves in this new era of technology, in this old industry that we've been a part of for a really long time. Some things have changed. And so we just need to chat about it and know that, you know, not. Every situation calls for it. If you're at a bakery, and again, you're just getting a product, you're not going to tip. But let's say that baker made you this amazing customized birthday cake. The reason that the tip option exists is because there's going to be some sort of option at this establishment where a service is applicable. You go to a body shop and you get your car repaired, don't tip. But
0: you got it detailed, tip. Mm, Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. I love these nuances. This is really helpful. Um, at a bar for drinks, I ask because previously there was a like dollar per beverage rule. and now I'm like, is that outdated? What's the what's the rule for a, a drinks at a bar? Yeah,
1: I think this is both an outdated, Standard and something that can still be applicable. Let's Mm. say that you're getting a pop-top beer. Sure, cool. A dollar a beer is totally within range. But the reason that I love a percentage is that oftentimes the pricing of those establishments is reflective of the value that that percentage will hold the value of. So let's say that you're at a high dining establishment and your bill's a hundred bucks, the 20% is gonna be 20 bucks on that. Whereas if you're at a casual diner for instance, your bill is going to be 25 bucks, you know, and that's going to be a less amount that is more appropriate to the level of service that you receive. So staying within that percentage is, is, is a safe range for you to Mm -hmm. understand that you you're acting within the guidelines of this industry. Now, some areas where I think that are also outdated is like when you used to stay at a hotel, you would give your housekeeping like a dollar per night. I think that's totally out of, out of date. And now I lean more towards three to $5 -hmm. per night for housekeeping housekeeping instead of the dollar to three dollars. So yeah, I think if you're getting a pop-top beer, throw a buck for a drink. That's still that's still totally fine. Um, but if you ever have a doubt, stick with the percentage.
0: And you mentioned the hotel uh, tip. Now you do like a three to five night for the housekeeper. Is it better to tip every single day or Just leave like a 20 at the end of your stay, just because sometimes I feel bad that I like forget. I'm like running out the room because I'm already late for like the safari tour or like the zoo visit or whatever we're doing. And I'm like, damn, I forgot to do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you you have to do what works for you. Right. Right. Like this is this is a luxury service. This is a luxury experience. And so part of that is that it's not supposed to be difficult on you. Right. And so if what's available to you is to tip a 20, cool. If you have it in you to be able to break that up because you know that housekeeping staff is different each day, do that too. But typically it all ends up working out. Um, And people get into the tipped industry understanding that their income has this risk versus reward. They understand the volatility. Mm -hmm. But what's really great about this industry is that a lot of times for people who are in low middle income or like even on borderline poverty, it's one of those industries that still exists that can help pull people out of poverty. Right. So they go into it understanding that sometimes it's not going to be in their favor. Totally.
2: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
0: So up next, hairdresser, nails, beauty professional. Yeah, 15 to 25%. 15 to 25 delivery food. Okay,
1: this is a good one. Yes, right. Because I feel like we're all we're all engaging in a lot more delivery Mm -hmm. than we all used to. Mm -hmm. And so this is a part of this changing landscape. Like if some guy is walking up five flights of stairs with like four boxes of seltzer water for me, like I'm going to give 25%. And I know that's absurd. But if somebody's just having a nice stroll walking across the street with a pizza for me, then you know, maybe I only feel inclined to give 10% in that. So this is one of those where it's like use your best judgment. If you mm-hmm. have movers who are carrying up a piano and you're you know, like this is a 20 to 25% tipping situation. Whereas if they're, you know, just opening a few boxes and putting them right inside your, you know, may- maybe that's not right. So some of this is just using your best judgment and understanding that these employees have a very different situation than most traditionally employed people in that they don't have a lot of financial safety nets in place. They don't have health insurance. They don't have mm-hmm. access to paid days off. They don't have access to a 401k or employer provided benefits. People who work in the service industry are twice as likely to experience poverty, homelessness. They age into the most economically disadvantaged population in our country. And so when you put yourself in the shoes of those workers, I think it is a good reminder that, you know, these people work really hard. They're a really important part of our communities and this is how we can support that.
0: Well, I love that. And last but not least, Ubers and taxis. 15 to 25%. Love it. Okay. And, you know, we talk about tipping. You mentioned like service industry is one of those workforces where if you are in poverty, it's a job where you could potentially pull yourself out. At the end of the day, do you like the tipping system? If, you know, I think it's not perfect, but I think a complaint that I hear a lot is like, it's not my job to pay these people's wages. If they don't like this job, they should get a new job. And it's like, that's kind of stupid. And they're like, we shouldn't have to tip anyway, tipping stupid. And I'm like, okay, but like in the, like, how do we combat tipping? But at the same time, like, obviously, like, let's continue making sure people can like live.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, no one should feel bad about how they make their living, right? This industry has been around for over 150 years. And yeah, it's super problematic, as is capitalism, as right. is all <laughs> systemic things, right? Like yep. labor is exploitive in nature. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, 100%. to me, whenever I have that conversation, I'm like, yeah, everything is problematic. And this is no exception, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't support the workers. And when I decided to write this book, I interviewed a ton of service industry professionals. And I myself was a service industry professional for 20 years. I'm not here to talk. I'm not here to promote workers or to or the employers, right? Like, I'm here for the workers. And what they want is they like tipping. They like to know that there's no cap to what they can earn. Mm-hmm. They like to know that they can, this is one of the only industries where you can work more to make more. Right. They like to know that their hustle will have a result. They like to know that like the better they are at entertaining, the better they are at all of these subtle skills that you possess when you're in the service industry will be compensated for. Otherwise you would just go work at a counter job and make normal minimum wage. Right. Right. And so when people say it's not their responsibility, don't engage in a a luxury service if you can't afford to tip if you are on a budget or you're watching your own you know dollars and cents there's so many other options for you have a picnic have a potluck have you know have people over to your place scoop your own ice cream make your own coffee go pick up your own food don't use somebody else's labor and then say that you're not responsible to compensate them for a standard that has existed for over 150 years we are all each other's brothers and sisters keepers and this is a part of engaging in a luxury
0: service. And on that note, you say we all are each other's keepers. How do you handle like a really bad tipping friend? I ask as... I'm not going to name names, but I did go to dinner with a person. They ended up tipping 10% on our bill. And I was like, this is so humiliating. So I ended up tipping 30 to try and like basically even it out. And I'm like, damn, am I like not supposed to go to dinner with this person anymore? And I love them. I think they're amazing. But this really like shocked me that they tipped so little. What do I say? Yeah. I mean, let them listen to this episode.
1: I usually (laughs) think it's just like an uninformed... I'm an optimist. I think people are mostly good. And I think that most people act out of either misinformation or maybe they have their own scarcity mindset, right? Where they're worried about their own financial situation. Um, But it's is—it's not okay to go to those establishments and force other people to pay out of pocket when they have to do those things like tipping out. And so it's important to like, if you have a friend and they're important to you and something's not going right, to have that hard conversation with them of like, hey, this is actually painful for me to experience because I know what it's like. I think you've been a barista, right? I haven't.
0: I haven't. No, you haven't. Okay. Have you worked at all in the service industry? I have not, though I have done a lot of unpaid work. And let me tell you, it is absolutely thankless.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. So I I would lead with that example. Like, hey, I've done a lot of unpaid work and I know that when we tip less than 15%, that means this person is not paid because they get $2 and 13 cents an hour. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, they don't, they rely on our tips. And so like, if we're shortchanging them, I just don't feel good about this, this dining experience. And so, yeah, usually it's just anytime I talk to people and they're like, Oh, I wasn't aware that they had to tip out or I wasn't aware that they didn't have any of these benefits. or I wasn't aware that, you know, because they, don't claim a good portion of their tips that they don't receive social security,
0: mm-hmm. right? Like I, I wasn't aware. Most people are just unaware. Mm -hmm. and let's pivot to kind of the last section of today's show. How are tipped workers excluded from traditional wealth building opportunities, aka how can our listeners who are service workers hashtag get rich?
1: Yes. Okay. So I wrote a whole book about this (laughs) and I'm so excited to dive into it because to me, this was like my big aha moment where I was like, Oh, like I'd moved to New York City when I was like, in 2013, I had like 700 bucks in my pocket and I got two jobs. One was working at Coyote Ugly, which if people don't know what it is, you sing and dance on the bar, you hit your patrons, you get girls to take their bras off. It's a really good time.
0: (laughs) How can you not know what Coyote Ugly is? We all watch the movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a very good time. Um, And then I worked on wall street for a few months during, Mm -hmm. during the day, um, not on your type of wall street and a really ugly side of wall street. And I lasted there for about six months. And then I left there and I started working at a construction company and they like had me doing HR and all of these benefits. And I didn't know what any of them were. And so it was in researching all of these safety nets that I realized most Americans are operating with, that I was just sort of like, oh, it's these systems and then mm-hmm. some mindset stuff that is the reason we're not building building well. So the first, I like to think of the book as sort of like a sandwich cookie. The first couple chapters is like the first half of the sandwich cookie. We're going to talk about environments. We're going to talk about boundaries, right? Like I always say that the bar is like the comment section of a Facebook post. Like you get a lot of crazy. You get a lot of like, oh my God, what is happening here? Coming at you. And so you have to protect your energy. You have to protect yourself in those situations. And so some of that looks like boundaries. Some of that looks like building an emergency fund. An emergency fund is so important for people in the service industry because there is that power imbalance. You are literally reliant on somebody else in order to make your money. And so you can't be reliant on a specific tip. So that emergency fund is really, really important to keep people safe and acting according to their values, which is what you need to do to have a long-term career. So we talk a lot about boundaries, environments, how to protect yourself in this workplace, because oftentimes you're not trained on the hazards of this industry when you're when you're in it. The middle section of the book is a lot of those sexy financial systems, right? Pay yourself first, how to budget on a fluctuating income, which is really important for people in the service industry because it's really challenging, right? You think, I can't do that. I just, I can't do that. Most people are like, oh, I'll just work really hard in the beginning of the month. And then, you know, maybe I'll offload some shifts once I get my money. Or, you know, you live off of credit, and then you're like, oh, I'll just pay it down as I can. And so, uh, those are systems; those are strategies. They just mm-hmm. don't—they're right. not the best strategies, right? And so, I often like to remind people that no business has the same two months of income, right. and you have to treat your money just like a business. You have to look for trends, which means you have to track your income. You have to set targets for your spending, and then you have to go back and look and analyze and see what went right and what went wrong. It's there's nothing perfect about it. You just you have to be as consistent as a business. It's all that much more important for you to try to track and budget as it is for a business because you are living on that fluctuating income. We talk about setting up your own retirement account. So a lot of people assume that because their employer doesn't provide a retirement account that they can't save for retirement. But the only reason that those accounts are called retirement accounts is because they have some preferential tax treatment. Mm -hmm. Any vehicle can be a retirement account. Your cash safe at home is, is a version of a vessel that can hold retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, So for people who are W-2'd in the service industry, I like to get them started with an IRA, which is an individual retirement account, and then a brokerage account if you're somebody who's 1099 or off the books, which most people have a problem with, but I'm like, if your employer's gonna fuck you, let them fuck you the whole way, this is actually a great thing for you because we can set you up with like a SEP IRA or a solo 401k or, you know, and then we can deduct expenses, right? Mm -hmm. You can deduct your health insurance, you can deduct your cell phone bill. Being a business is a really great thing financially. Definitely. So, if you are, if your employer won't put you on the books, in some ways, that can be a big advantage. So, um,
0: major key. We love that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, we talk about investing. I like to. You know, this. You are a financial expert. You're somebody who is trained on Wall Street. We use a lot of jargon in this industry. Yeah, we do. We gatekeep a ton. We make it so complicated. My investing chapter is probably one of my favorite things because it. If you understand what it's like to be at a bar, you're going to understand investing by the time you're done with this chapter. I like to say investing is like wine. You can get really deep into wine. You can talk about notes and region and mouthfeel and body and tannins (laughs) and year. I mean, you can get into the weeds with wine, but you don't have to to have a really great wine experience. You need to know a little bit about what you like and your tolerance. And you can have a great wine experience. And the same is true for investing. You don't have to get into Forex and crypto and bell curves and options. You don't need to. You can. But in order to have a great investing experience, you need to know, again, a little bit about your risk tolerance and the end goals in mind. And you can have a great investing career without doing all the bells and whistles. And so I just like to remind people that like, if you're saving for retirement, and oftentimes we'll compare ourselves to our really wealthy friends or our really wealthy people that we're following on social media, but they have to save and invest for a six-figure retirement. If we're low and middle income earners working at a bar, working as a waitress, we don't have to save and invest. We can save and invest for a low and middle income retirement. So it's just as there's hope, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that's the big part of the message is that there's hope for people in this industry to be able to retire and even retire early. The big reason I wrote this book was because I was like, oh man, if I had started doing any of this when I was 20, I'd be retired by now.
0: You know, you answered my question. I was going to ask if tip workers can even achieve financial independence, but it sounds like you are very much pro, like you can do this. We can all retire. We all deserve to retire. And you actually talked quite a bit about building an abundance mindset as a tip worker. And we recently had an episode where this large social media creator Tinks talked about abundance mindset as it pertains to women competing with each other. How would you say like abundance mindset is defined and plays into the service industry? I love this question. So we talked about the book kind of being that sandwich cookie. The
1: last part is all mindset stuff, because this yeah. stuff is just so, 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 so important. For people in the service industry, mindset's really interesting because they have a re- they have an abundance mindset, a short-term abundance mindset, but they mm-hmm. don't have a long-term abundance mindset. They have a long-term scarcity mindset. So like when you're in the service industry, you're going in cash all the time. right? You're like, oh, if I spend this hundred bucks from this shift, it's okay. I'll pick up another shift tomorrow. Money is always coming in. And so you have this, like, you always think there's going to be another shift. You always think there's an opportunity to earn this type of money. And so you oftentimes end up living a lifestyle that is not in line with maybe a long-term value set or even putting some of those financial systems in place for yourself. And so developing that long-term abundance mindset's really important. I like to tackle mindset early because largely it's a free endeavor right like Mm -hmm. all of these other systems of like investing in your 401k saving all of it's you have to have money to do that stuff right you can't budget your way out of poverty and so Mm -hmm. if you're working on increasing your income we may as well start talking about abundance and mindset because that's free so I like to give people four free strategies for building an abundance mindset the first is mantras mantras are great way for you to build an abundance mindset and I always like to say find something where it's truth meeting possibility so if for people in the service industry, maybe a mantra would be money comes easily and frequently to me because yeah. money does come easily and frequently Absolutely. to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That ties in perfectly to identity, building a positive, abundant identity. If you are saving, you are a saver. If you are investing, you are an investor. Our words and our language is another resource, just like our money, our time, and our energy. And we need to use it really wisely. And so you aren't broke, you're in a wealth building stage. You're not bad with money, you're getting better with money. And so adopting some of those those positive identity attributes for yourself can really go a long way to building an abundance mindset. The last two I love also because they do a trick to your brain. So one is gratitude, a gratitude practice. If you are grateful for what you have, then you are not thinking about what you lack. And so that does a trick in your brain where it automatically puts you into an abundance mindset. I am grateful for this shift. I am grateful for my coworkers. I am grateful for, you know, my morning coffee, whatever it is. You aren't thinking about what you lack. And then the last one is charity. And we often think of charity in terms of like, what can I give financially, which is great, but there's so many other ways to give. You can give your time, you can give your energy, but charity is another one of those things. When your brain is like, oh, I have enough to give, that means I have enough. And so it puts you in a state of abundance and so that's why I really love love the mindset stuff it can sound a little woo-woo but (laughs) it works it works you cannot get over the scarcity to invest like you will be too scared to put your money into an account. You will be too scared to give it, to put your money into, right. you know, those, those places where it needs to go in order to build if you're tackling scarcity mindset. And what people will often end up doing in a scarcity mindset is they'll either hoard, mm-hmm. they'll be avoidant. Put it under their mattress. Put it under their mattress. They will maybe take it away from, them. they'll spend it before they feel like it has, before it can be taken from them. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they want it out of their hands. Maybe they don't know how to be a good steward over it. And so, they'll just spend it or let people borrow it or, you know, so it's really important to tackle that, that scarcity mindset and try to
0: work towards building
1: an abundance mindset for you to get good with money. I love that. You know, you give all of these
0: amazing tips that are very helpful and positive. Can you tell me about some money mistakes you made when you were younger? Some stuff that's a little bit more negative that, like, I feel like a lot of listeners get concerned when they're like, oh, she has all of this good advice, but like, she probably hasn't made the mistakes that I've made. You know, can you share a couple of examples of? things that you wish you had done differently and how our listeners can be better than us.
1: Yeah, a story is so important to us connecting to even even imagining what's possible for ourselves. Like if right. we don't see somebody close enough, then, then we just feel like it's not possible. Right. And so for me, I feel like I have truly tested the limits of the credit system. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that the library could report to your credit. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> the library can report to your credit because you had like too many late books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had taken out like um, this is going to show my age, but I had taken out like books on CD <laughs> and didn't return them um, because I was moving around all the time. I was like constantly going yeah. to like different states, and so like I remember like checking books out from like the Las Vegas library and like not returning them, and that totally hit my credit report because I had like five books on CDs. They charged me like 200 bucks or something. What's a CD worth? I don't know. I don't, I I don't remember, but I was horrified. I was embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, out of country medical debt can hit your credit report. Had no idea about that. When I was 19, this is my, this is my biggest financial mistake, which is also one of my biggest life lessons. When I was 19, I purchased the house that I grew up in 100% financed for twice the price that the previous owners had paid. And I did that because it was the house that I grew up in. Yeah. And my dad had passed away. And I, at the time I couldn't afford a proper burial for him. And so this was my way of like working through my grief and trying to honor him as I was like, I'm going to restore the house that I grew up in. And so at 19, I took out 10 credit cards on a 100% financed house. I maxed them all out to renovate and restore the house myself. And I put myself in almost 200 Hundred thousand dollars in debt oh my god and i was angry for a really long time and part of the reason i went into the service industry was because i was avoidant of that credit i was running away from creditors i was like i don't want any part of this financial system i don't if, if i can get so screwed over at such a young age with so little knowledge then screw it i'm not gonna but the only i was only hurting myself Right. So I I, in the book, there is a chapter on credit and debt. And, you know, I don't like to operate around shame or fear. Debt is not a thing you are. It's just a thing you hold. And we can hold a lot of things all at once. And so if you are in debt, I definitely know what that's like. I have been there and it is tough to Get those calls from those creditors to yeah. deal with that mail, to deal with those phone calls. But it is possible for you to manage it and to get out of it. So there's some strategies in the book to talk about it. But again, I like to operate around abundance and around positive things. And like, you know, so I like to see things growing as well as paying off. If you have debt and you're paying it off, that's great. But maybe put a little bit aside so that you can see something growing at the same time. You know, you are deserved of retirement. You are deserved of savings, mm-hmm. even if you have debt debt, even if you are holding on to some of that debt right now. So I have made a lot of financial mistakes. I put myself in some really, really tough positions. I lived in my car. I have been homeless multiple times in my life. And so I grew up outside of Detroit in the suburbs. I went to an alternative high school because I was kicked out of my high school for being gay. You know, like I have had some challenges and money has been one of them. Mm-hmm. So if you are going through it right now, I totally, totally sympathize.
0: Your story is so inspiring. It feels like you've overcome, it doesn't feel like you have overcome so much adversity to be where you are today. Like, what's the best piece of advice you would give to 21 year old Barbara, you know, someone who's just starting out in the service industry? What's the one thing that you would tell them? An
1: emergency fund. And I know, I know we say it over and over and over again but this financial i don't know what do we call it a product a thing it's 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 a bucket that we have it will change your life you will show up to your life differently once you have that in place mm-hmm. it changes your relationships it changes how you behave at work it will change your entire life when somebody first told me about an emergency fund i was pissed i was like i'm sorry jeff you want me to have three to six months of my savings of like my expenses in an account just sitting there not for a down payment not for a trip not for a vacant just sitting there doing nothing that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard of and i spent six months reading every single thing i could on emergency funds and it was the only thing he was right on and and it is life-changing when you have that safety net in place you can make different decisions we talked about trying to budget your way out of out of poverty when you have a little bit of savings, you can take more risks. And oftentimes yeah. risks are what lead to really amazing opportunities. Let's say that you there's a new bar or restaurant opening and you want to apply to be there. You can't do that without some savings because you know that the first few months of a new restaurant or bar, it's gonna be struggle bus, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not gonna be good. You're gonna have to take time to build up your save, to build up your regulars for them
0: to get into the swing of things. And so that savings, it will change your life. Love it. And I always like to end on a positive note. Can you tell me about your biggest money win? The thing you're most proud of. I mean, so I'm so proud of, I'm so proud of this book. It was just, named
1: one of the top five personal finance books to read for 2023 in Forbes magazine. And this is a book that I self-published. This Mm -hmm. is a book that was just an idea because I wanted to help people. And the fact that it's now getting mainstream attention and that it's going to help the more than 5.5 million people out there who are struggling on a fluctuating income is is one of the biggest
0: things that I've ever done. I'm so proud of it. Okay. Well, tell us where everyone who is listening can find you.
1: Yeah. I'm on all the socials at tipped finance. I hang out mostly on Instagram, um, starting off on TikTok. I really like to make uh, memes and I do a little <laughs> bit of stand up. So I'm doing like some stand up reels of my comedy about personal finance in the service industry. So yeah, socials at Tip Finance. You can also find me on my website, which is tipfinance.com. I do one on one coaching, I do speaking gigs. Tell me about a win. I love to see people in the service industry win. So please get in touch. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Vivian, this is a blast.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audio Boom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye.